All right, well, welcome to a new teaching series here at Bringing Bible Church, one we might title Basic Bible Doctrine. I'm glad you made it here tonight, but I wonder what some of you are thinking or expecting coming to a study with the word doctrine in the title. Doctrine, for some, this word conjures up images of a medieval man locked in a tower, poring over manuscripts by candlelight. For others, it might elicit memories or, or nightmares of school and just a purely academic exercise. And for most, though, just the, stu- uh, the thought of studying doctrine is not appealing. I mean, doctrine, studying doctrine, that, that's for pastors. That, that's something you have to be paid to do, right? But no, believe it or not, doctrine is for everyone. Though some might be intimidated at the mere thought of studying doctrine, uh, the content of the Bible is accessible and understandable. God is a God of order, not confusion, and the teachings of the Bible reflect that. God intends for all of his followers, not just the clergy, to understand scripture and even doctrine and to apply it to their their lives. And so along these lines, doctrinal truth is not just head-filling, but life-transforming. We're not just here to learn about some things and pass a test, win at Bible Jeopardy, like we played at the men's retreat, but to live better and to, to worship and to follow Christ. And, and pursue him. And so a proper study of doctrine is not just an academic exercise, but it's a, a practical means of drawing closer to God in worship. God has to be worshiped in spirit and truth. This is the truth side. We have to know him rightly to worship him rightly and to follow him. We need that truth. So in this basic Bible doctrine series, we're going to explore and study Bible doctrine, basically. But we're going to do so in a clear, understandable, and practical way. Doctrine is not meant to be a purely academic exercise restricted just to the theological elite, but it should be open and accessible to all. So you need not be scared or or put off. I think if you invest yourself in this study, you'll be blessed and you will grow in the knowledge of the truth and hopefully thereafter worship. Now in this first lesson, we're actually going to jump right into it. This is not an introductory lesson. We're going to study the first of of these doctrines, the doctrine of the Bible. But before we get there, I will include a few more words of introduction. Just give you a little overview about where we're going with this study in this new series. Where are we headed? First, though, let's just quickly define this word, doctrine. You can simply say doctrine is the collective teaching of the Bible on a particular topic. It is as simple as that. It's like everything the Bible says about a given topic. That, that's doctrine. So, for example, the doctrine of God is everything the Bible says about God. It's it's a big doctrine. The doctrine of sin is everything the Bible teaches about sin. And doctrines are formed by just studying all scriptures that relate to that topic in question. Doctrines can be very broad in scope, like the doctrine of God, or they can narrow down like the doctrine of God's mercy. You can also make a distinction between major and minor doctrines. All truth matters. But even the apostles themselves made a differentiation between majors and minors. We might define major doctrines as those that relate to salvation, or those that impact other doctrines, or those that impact how we live. Christians should strive for unity in all things, but agreement on those major doctrines really is essential. We could say, like Augustine said, that in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Now, let's also define the word theology, since we'll be throwing it around here and there. 
Theology, the word itself comes from the Greek theos, meaning God and logos, word or discourse. And so theology is a discourse about God or more formally, the the study of God. Theology is the study of God. Narrowly speaking, when you're studying God himself, the being of God himself, we call that theology proper. But more broadly speaking, theology is the study of all things related to God. Man, sin, salvation, creation, angels, everything the Bible talks about. There's a theologian, Miller J. Erickson. He lists some facets of theology that are helpful to point out. Theology is biblical, meaning that the Bible is the primary source for theology, not experience, but the Bible. Theology is systematic, and that is theology draws on the entire Bible. Systematically examined, we're not talking about isolated verses detached from the whole. It's holistic. We are taking into consideration everything the Bible says about a given subject. Theology is contemporary, meaning, although truth is timeless, theology must use language and concepts that make sense in the present time. And so theology might involve terms or concepts that the biblical authors didn't use, like trinity or incarnation. Words not actually found in the Bible, but we were just giving labels to what the Bible says about a given subject. And lastly, theology is practical. And that it is meant to relate to right living, not just right believing. Theology is a means of knowing God more. We know that's our starting point, though, for obeying God more, which in turn translates into worshiping God more. But that's why we're here. We want to know God more and to know who he is, what he has said, who we are, his son Christ, and, and all the rest. We think often of systematic theology. This word systematic comes from the Greek synestano, meaning to organize. Systematic theology is just organized theology. Let's put a little organization into it. And it answers the question, what does all of Scripture teach about a given topic? Have you ever wondered that before? You might fill in the blank with the topic, but I bet you've, you've probably Googled, like, what does the Bible say about X? And you'll find some answers. Maybe not all helpful. We're going to try and provide biblical answers in this series. That's a, a question we've all had, from a, a broad issue to a narrow issue. What does the Bible say about this. And systematic theology involves collecting and understanding all relevant passages on a given topic in the Bible in their context, summarizing their teaching, and then forming doctrines as a result. Anytime you summarize what the Bible says about something, you are doing systematic theology. And there's a great benefit to studying the doctrines of the Bible systematically. It really gives you a holistic view of what the Bible says about a given topic. And systematic theology harmonizes the Bible and is very helpful. But at the same time, though, we just have to remember that God did not deliver his perfect inspired revelation to us as a systematic theology textbook in the form of just a list of propositional truths. That's not how he chose to communicate his word to us. Rather, he gave us the 66 books of the Bible. They're filled with narrative and prose and poetry and prophecy and gospels and epistles and more. And so we have to be careful to not let systematic theology replace how we approach the Bible, but rather supplement it as an aid for understanding God's revelation. All right, so with this basic intro on doctrine and theology in mind, a good point to tell you where we're headed with our time together. This is meant to be a 10 or 11 week little series here. 
And systematic theology has classically been broken down into 10 branches or 10 divisions. And we're going to try and do basically like a one week on each of them. You don't have to try and write this down because we'll go over these one by one. But I'll read these 10 branches of systematic theology for you. Overview. First, the doctrine of the Bible or bibliology. Second, the doctrine of God or theology proper. Third, the doctrine of Christ, Christology. Fourth is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or pneumatology. Fifth is the doctrine of angels, Satan, and demons, often called angelology. Sixth, the doctrine of man, anthropology. Seven, the doctrine of sin, hamartiology. Eight, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. Nine, the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. And ten, the doctrine of last things, eschatology. And so in this series, we're going to do our best to discipline ourselves. I really should be saying, I'm going to do my best to discipline myself. And just give one lesson on each of these doctrines. Again, the only exception might be the doctrine of salvation. That's so big, it might merit two. But this series is titled Basic Bible Doctrine. Each of these 10 major doctrines could merit their own multi-month-long series, as you well know. That, that's really not the goal of our time together for this series. We have done some extremely in-depth teaching times before, like how we got the Bible, or the deity of Christ, or the doctrines of grace. This study, I just want to give a broad overview of the major doctrines of the Bible. As much as it's in my nature to take things in depth or to argue for or against a certain view, it's just not our goal here. I just want to give a, an introduction to what the Bible says about certain topics. And if we encounter multiple views, I will do my best to succinctly state them, make them clear, and just leave it at that. And so this series is meant to be a solid introductory resource for basic discipleship. That goes for everyone here and those might listening in the future online. I want to help the new or young Christian gain a sturdy grasp of the theology of the Bible. And even for those who are already more mature in the faith, This is still an excellent time to be refreshed and solidified in what you believe. And there's a good chance you'll still learn a thing or two anyway and grow deeper in your understanding and appreciation of the knowledge of the truth. All right, so that's it for introduction. That's where we're headed here. Rest of our time tonight, we are just beginning with number one, the doctrine of the Bible or bibliology. So we're going to start right now, the doctrine of the Bible. Walk to a bookstore today, and on the shelves, you'll find many Bibles. There's the Vegetable Gardening Bible, the PC Upgrade Bible, the Home Maintenance Bible, the Carpenter's Bible, the Chess Player's Bible, the Cook's Bible, and many more. Why are all these books called Bibles? Because they are accepted or really just promoted as the authoritative resource on their respective subject matters. I mean, You want to buy the fishing lure Bible because how else will you know everything there is to know about fishing lures? But there's another Bible to speak of. We call it the Holy Bible. It has many names, scripture, the word, God's word, the good news, the book, the good book, or just the Bible. This book is also an authoritative resource on its subject matter. And subject matter just so happens to be God and man. And sin, salvation, creation, past, present, future, and much more. The Bible is a resource for life itself. So who is God? How should we live before God? How do we 
get to this God? The Bible answers all of life's most important questions. It's that authoritative resource for what we want to know. Now, obviously, the Bible is absolutely fundamental to the Christian faith. And that's why it's our first lesson in this Basic Bible Doctrine series. It's often placed first in a systematic theology. It's it's a foundation. And as Christians, we don't worship the Bible. We worship God, but to know this God fully, we, we need the Bible. It's how he has chosen to reveal himself specially in written format and a written word passed down. And so we need the Bible if we are to know the God of our salvation. And hence we start here. The goal of this lesson is to explore the doctrine of the Bible. We're going to begin by asking, what is the Bible? So a first part, just helping us gain a better appreciation for the scriptures themselves. Like, what, what is this thing? Second, we'll cover the Bible's origin. Help us understand how we got this book we hold in our hands. And third, we're going to talk about the Bible's character to break it down. So first, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? The word for scripture itself comes from the Greek word graphe, meaning writing. But it's used of the group of sacred writings or authoritative writings that come from God. We know them as the Old and New Testaments. The Bible is not just a book. And it's not just a history lesson, it's God's revelation, meaning his self-disclosure to mankind. What he has revealed about himself in a special form. It's God's message to man. It's what God wants all people to know about himself and his plan, what he's up to. And most significantly, the Bible is a divine book with a divine origin. When you think about the divine origin of the Bible, several things come to mind. And first, that the Bible is self-claimed to come from God. This is what sets it apart as like the real Bible, contrary to like the gardening Bible. This is the, the real Bible. It, it's self-claimed to come from God first. You know, over 3,800 times in the Bible, you'll find the phrase, you know, God says, or thus says the Lord. It's, it's every page. It's claiming to come from the God of the universe, the same God. And these words indicate a, a direct claim by scripture that they come from God himself. The Bible claims to be what God has said. These writings were accepted as God's words, even though everyone knew they were written by human authors. Prophets wrote these down, actually penned them, but everyone accepted these were coming from God. We'll talk about that later. But people understood that not heeding these writings was equivalent to not heeding God himself, what he has said. As an example, Paul says as much in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says to the church, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The scripture claims to come from God. Secondly, it's self-attested to come from God. And you find that in just the very nature and composition of the Bible itself. When you consider the sacred writings of all the other religions and their singular works, meaning like one author writing one book at one time, they're all singular works. The Bible is, is truly different, written by about 40 different authors from such vast and diverse backgrounds and education levels shepherds, kings, military commanders, a tax collector, fishermen, a doctor, foreign government officials, a rabbi. The list goes on. 
Additionally, the Bible is written over a period of about 1,500 years on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And most of these authors wrote without knowledge of one another, and at times even without knowledge of one another's writings. But that, that's an extreme amount of diversity when it comes to a composition of, of one work, one unified work. And then, yet when you put them all together, though, you have as a result a unified whole with no errors, no contradictions. It's unified in content, unified in theology. These men are all describing, these 40 plus authors are all describing the same God, the same story, the same Messiah, the same plan. It is truly profound. And it's one of the strongest attestations of the divine authorship of the Bible. Thirdly, this scripture is spirit attested to come from God. As we think of it as a divine book, self-attested, self-claimed, but also spirit-attested to come from God. And for those who know God, the Holy Spirit testifies within them. The Bible is the Word of God. If only the Spirit knows the depths of God, then only the Spirit can reveal the depths of God, like 1 Corinthians 2 says. This is what the Spirit does for those who believe, working in them and bearing witness to Scripture as God's Word. And true, that is, in a sense, subjective. Anyone can make that claim, but that doesn't stop the fact that Scripture says the Spirit will testify within those who believe that these are the very words of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16. Now, altogether, the Bible is not just a book. It's a divine book. It's God's unique revelation or communication to man. He hasn't told us everything in the Bible. He hasn't even told us everything about him in the Bible or or his plans, but he's told us everything he wants us to know about him and his plans, everything we need to know that we might spend the rest of eternity getting to know him even further. And this is why we, we need the Bible. All right, secondly, we're going to talk about the Bible's origin. The Bible's origin. Where did we get the Bible? Where did it come from? How did it get to us, even the, the very copy we hold in our hands today. Like, how did this thing actually come about? You all are holding a copy of the Bible in your hands. How did that actually happen? Well, there are five links in the chain of how we got the Bible. And several years ago, this is actually one of those in-depth studies I did, a multi-month-long study titled, How We Got the Bible. And we're not going to do that now, but we can summarize that give you just the basics. So let me summarize those five links in the chain of how we got the Bible. The first two are extremely relevant to the doctrine of the Bible. So we're going to spend most of our attention on the first two. The first is revelation. It starts with God revealing himself, right? Had to start there. God revealed himself. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means disclosure, Something veiled that's unveiled, that's being revealed. So when we speak of the Bible as a revelation, don't think of like the book of Revelation. We're thinking of like the self-disclosure of God to man. This is what God is revealing about himself to mankind. And if God did not disclose himself, we could not know him as we now know him. The knowledge of God is not a discovery. It's a disclosure. You're not going to discover what the Bible says apart from him revealing it. If he, if he went radio silent on us, we would be in the dark forever. We'd be ignorant forever. For us to know God, he had to disclose himself to us, and he chose to do so in many ways. 
not just the Bible. There are other ways he revealed himself. We start with what's called general revelation. General revelation. This is God's unwritten and unspoken communication to man. This is how God reveals himself to us indirectly. And primarily, general revelation comes through creation itself, through creation. You observe the, the billions of stars, the sun, the moon, the oceans, the human body, the brain, even DNA now. And all says something about God. All of creation bears his fingerprints. We learned this even back in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. I'll just read verse 1. It says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Without using words, God's creation is saying something about God. It's revealing something, not everything, but something about God. Beholding the, the majesty, for example, of the created order is meant to impress upon us the majesty of the creator, because the creator is always greater than the creation. We learned something of something of the glory of God in creation. That pales in comparison to the glory of God we see in Christ and we learn of in the scriptures. But we learn something of the glory of God in creation. For example, you ponder, even as we learn more about creation, like the universe now, we know that at the least there seems to be around 100 billion galaxies, each filled with 100 billion stars. Seems a bit much. It's a bit excessive. Why would God make a universe so big? We might postulate perhaps it's just to show us that he's a little bit like that. He's, he's a little bit like that. Really big, really powerful, unlimited. General revelation is not limited to nature alone, though. It also comes in the form of providence and man's conscience. The hand of God can be seen guiding human history and providing the means for life on earth. And also God programs all people with a conscience, which, although it can be distorted, it contains God's sense of right and wrong. God writes his law in man's heart and thereby revealing to man that which is good and evil. We can know something of God's character and his morality from conscience. General revelation reveals many key attributes of God. And although it's limited, what it says is clear and true. It's a valid form of God's revelation, but it is limited. We can only know so much of God. And it can be said that general revelation is sufficient to damn, but not sufficient to save. It's sufficient to convict us, like Romans 1 says, that God exists. He's powerful. He's made us. But we have a conscience. We violate it all the time. Something's wrong. But it cannot offer us any solutions to the sin problem we know all so well. It's not sufficient to save For that, we need next what's called special revelation. Special revelation. This refers to God's direct communication with man. God's direct communication. Now look, most of the time we associate special revelation with the Bible itself. And that's true. But special revelation can also come in many other forms. Many of which are recorded in the Bible. Like dreams and visions, theophanies. Direct address. And do you know the highest form of special revelation, even higher than actually the Bible? We might call it incarnate revelation, the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, revealing God himself, 
in human form. Christ was the ultimate message to man, the ultimate depiction of who God is, the representation of God in purest form. He's the pinnacle of God's revelation. But of course, now today we see this Jesus and learn of him in the Bible, which is our written revelation. And so typically now when we speak of special revelation, we're we're talking about in, in its written form, the Bible. Special revelation was made necessary after the fall. General revelation, that which is revealed about God in the heavenlies and the creation, it was never intended to address man's sin problem. If God did not further reveal himself, including his plan of redemption for mankind, man would just forever be lost and damned. God revealing himself in this way is already a mercy. The fact that that God said anything, the fact that God revealed anything at all is already mercy. That he's even showing, even if it's just some, a way of escape is already mercy where we deserve nothing. We're not entitled to his word. No one's entitled to the Bible. No one's entitled to any revelation from God. The fact that he's given any is his grace. But it's only through God's special revelation, specifically the Bible, that one can be saved and reconciled to this God. Now, of course, God's special revelation initially was given just to a select few individuals. And most of that revelation will be lost if they didn't pass it down in some form. And sometimes it was not God's will for that revelation to be passed down. But other times it was. It was passed down sometimes orally. But then there's a a subset of special revelation that God wanted passed down in written form. It was copied. It was written by prophets and apostles. God wanted it preserved for posterity for his people. A special class of his special revelation, the scriptures, the writings. And so really when we're talking about special revelation today, we mean the Bible. And it is in the Bible that God still speaks today. So this brings us to now the second link in the chain of how we got the Bible. Inspiration. Inspiration starts with revelation. God's disclosing himself. He's going to do it in a special way through writings. And that brings us to inspiration. And so we've learned so far, there are many forms of God's revelation or self-disclosure to man that there's only one form of special revelation that God intended to be permanent or lasting, and that is his written revelation, the Bible. The thing is, God didn't drop the Bible down from heaven on us. He didn't parachute it down in, in finished form. He used humans to write it, and then later copy it, later translate it. But starting with the writing process, and inspiration is a term we use to explain how God used men to write his work. And this sits at the very foundation now of the doctrine of the Bible. Inspiration. This is the bottom level of the doctrine of the Bible. So when it comes to the doctrine of the Bible, inspiration is a big deal. Everything else we will later tonight as we finish learn about the doctrine of the Bible. Everything else comes downstream from inspiration. This is the fountainhead of the doctrine of the Bible. Only because the Bible is inspired, which is to say, comes from God. Do we say that the Bible is authoritative in our lives and sufficient for all we need as well? 
The word inspiration itself refers to a process. Inspiration is the process by which the Holy Spirit works in and through human prophets, writing with their own unique personalities and vocabularies and styles to produce his authoritative, trustworthy, inerrant scriptures. You want to think about a simple definition of inspiration, just capture three parts, God's role, man's role, and the result. God's role, man's role, and the result. God's role is to work in and through human writers. He's superintending them, guiding them. Specifically, it's a work of God the Holy Spirit, superintending, guiding human authors. God has a part to play, but so does man. Man's role, where human authors, prophets, recorded God's revelation, and they used their own styles and vocabularies, upbringings, backgrounds, histories to write down. And the result, though, thirdly, the product was God's word written to man without error down to the very words used. And look, there is a real human element to the scriptures. God used men as his instruments. They were God's pen that he was moving up and down to accomplish his purposes. And so, yes, their upbringings, their backgrounds, their vocabularies all make their way into the the writings. But the Holy Spirit ensured that the result was precisely the word God wanted his people to hear. God, the Holy Spirit, ensured that the result of their writings was exactly what God wanted his people to hear and to receive. Now, as a quick aside, you might every now and then, well, maybe not every now and then, but infrequently hear the term or the phrase verbal, plenary inspiration. We're talking about doctrine. I feel I can throw that out there. Verbal, plenary inspiration. It's just a phrase used, you know, the 20th century, especially the doctrine of inspiration. Later inerrancy came under attack. And to those defending the truth in scripture wanted to clarify more what they really mean by inspiration. How far it goes. How far does it actually go? And and verbal plenary inspiration is a new term just explaining that. It it explains the extent of inspiration. How, How deep does it go? So we would say inspiration is verbal, meaning it extends to the very words used, not just the thoughts or the paragraphs, but the words of scripture themselves are inspired. And we say inspiration is plenary, meaning all the words, all the words of scripture are inspired. That's all it means. Verbal plenary inspiration. Every word of scripture is inspired. We don't have time to establish this, prove this, it's something we did over several weeks in that series, How We Got the Bible. But I challenge you on your own. You could do your own study of how Jesus himself viewed the scriptures, how he used them, how he quoted them, what he thought about them. You will find this was his view of the Bible and his view of inspiration. He believed it was inspired down to the letter and the, the comma, the jot, the tittle. He believed in verbal plenary inspiration. I will mention the two primary texts on inspiration, of course, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is where we get the word inspired, which literally means God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. And it's therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work that gets into its sufficiency, but that's coming up. But all scripture, he says, all of it is 
literally God breathed, meaning it comes from God. Again, it's where we get the word inspired. So to say that a book of the Bible is inspired is to say that though it's written by man, it is still breathed out coming from God. It's still divine in origin. Then you also have 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where Peter says that, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. See the human element? Men were doing this. There's a divine element. They spoke from God, and the result was this more sure word that Peter says in that chapter. This was not an act of self-will. Like, I think I should write a book today, but these men, uh, filled with the Spirit of God, were moved by God to write God's words to his people. You know, there's, there's a useful analogy to understand the divine and human nature of the Bible and how they come together in, in a bit of a mysterious way. But I want you to think of the person of Jesus. We're going to lean on a future lesson of Christology and the nature of Jesus. But if you don't know, Jesus was one person. But he had two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. In a way, we, we can't fully understand, though. These two natures came together perfectly so that we can say Jesus was fully divine and fully human. Not contradictory, but paradoxical, 100% human and 100% divine at the same time, somehow. That's what scripture teaches. Well, in a very similar way, we can say the same thing of the Bible. It has two natures. It's, it's one book, one thing, but it has two natures, one human, one divine. And we can say it is, fully, it is a fully divine book and a fully human book at the same time. Just like Christ said, a fully human nature, a fully divine nature, so does the Bible. You read this, you see different styles of different authors. It, it seems very human. And it is. God used men to write it. It is very human. But you see behind it all and together it all, it seems very divine as well. And that it is too. And furthermore, just as the Holy Spirit overshadowed, it says, Mary, ensuring that her offspring would be perfect humanity. So the Holy Spirit overshadowed the authors of scripture, ensuring their product would be perfect scripture. Holy Spirit is involved in both overshadowing, overshadowing the human element, ensuring that the result that came out was still perfect. And so we have the same with the Bible as well. So I told you inspiration is a big deal. It's the beginning of the doctrine of the Bible, has many implications that stem from it, we're going to get to those in just a second, but first let me quickly finish up the remaining three chains in how we got the Bible, because that's what we're talking about right now, this middle section. How do we get the Bible? There's five steps in that, or rather five links in that chain. It starts with revelation, then comes inspiration. Men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God, wrote down these words. Third comes canonization. Canonization. After learning about God's special written revelation, a question comes up. There's a lot of writings out there. How do you know which writings come from God and which don't? You know, which, which writings, which books record God's special revelation and which don't? That's a, a very important question. 
Because anybody can write a book and make the claim that it comes from God. Many have. And so what is the standard by which we can measure or differentiate God's actual revelation from false revelation? Because there is more false revelation than true revelation. A lot more. The answer to this is the canon. The term canon refers to those books considered as authoritative scripture. So the biblical canon is all the books of your Old and New Testaments. The term canonicity refers to the standard for measuring which books belong in this canon, which do not. In all the books of the Bible, we have been recognized as canonical, which is to say truly coming from God. We have to make a very important distinction here. Namely that neither mankind nor the church has the power to determine canonicity. It's not up to us to determine which books are in the canon to make that happen. Rather, you might say it's semantics, but it's not. Man does not determine which books are inspired or not. Rather, man can only recognize which books are inspired and which are not. And that's, that's what we're up to here. And this is an important distinction. Man's task and the church's task has never been to make certain books inspired or declare them inspired. Rather, man's objective is, as scripture tells us, test all things. We are to test all writings and then merely recognize the ones that display the characteristic of inspiration. The books of the Bible were inspired the very moment they were written. They were not made inspired later by some church council. They were inspired when they were written. And the church has always, not just at later councils, but has always, and and Israel as well, recognized these words as coming from God, regardless of what men might think about them. The completed canon consists of the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New. And again, although we won't get into these, I will mention, you might say, the top five tests of canonicity. What are some of these tests that we will put writings through to recognize if they have the mark of inspiration? I'm just going to mention them. First, authorship. The biggest, authorship. You know, was a book written by a prophet of God who himself had the true prophet's credentials, which the Bible also talks about. Authorship. Did it come from an apostle or a prophet? That's huge. Second, consistency was a book consistent with previous revelation. I mean, starts, the Bible starts with the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It is the, the first block. And anything that comes later, if God cannot lie, if God is true, can it contradict the Torah? Of course not, if, if it comes from God. And you can establish a line of consistency there. And, and so it's, it's valid. Consistency is a book consistent with previous revelation. Third, authority. Does a book even claim divine authority? Does a book claim divine authority? Fourth, power. Does a book come with God's dynamic power to change lives? That's a minor test, but a test nonetheless. And then lastly, reception. Was a book quickly received by the people of God? Did God's people receive it? Canonicity has a lot into it, and it's separate for the Old and New Testaments. That was probably like six weeks of our study and how we got the Bible, so you can get that on your own. For now, though, the last two links in the chain are transmission and translation. Number four, transmission, and number five, translation, how we got the Bible. Because after God revealed himself to prophets, and they wrote down 
how they were moved by the Spirit and spoke from God. And then all those writings were collected. You have the Bible. But if, if all sorts of people are going to benefit from that Bible, we need to make like a bunch of copies because just one copy is not going to last long or go very far. It's going to disintegrate. We need to make a lot of copies and then we need to make a lot of translations because not everyone speaks Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. And that's transmission and translation. The Bible's transmission, or we might call it preservation, has to do with how the Bible was copied and preserved and passed down through the centuries. And then the Bible's translation has to do how, with how it was translated from Greek and Hebrew into every other language. These steps, though, really go beyond the doctrine of the Bible. They're really more about church history. So we're going to just leave them right there and, and save them for some other time. But you put it all together from revelation to inspiration to canonicity to transmission to translation. Really stop and appreciate all those links in the chain. That, that's how you got this piece of paper and book and binding and leather you're holding in your hands. This is how we got the Bible. And it is trustworthy from beginning to end. Something we really aim to establish in that long study of how we got the Bible. So this strikes a chord with you. Perhaps you can go seek that out. Lastly, though, we need to finish up our time. A third and final section here as we consider an introduction to the doctrine of the Bible. The Bible's character. The Bible's character. We asked, what is the Bible? Talked about the Bible's origin. But lastly, the Bible's character. By this, we mean the Bible has certain characteristics that you need to know. All of these stem from inspiration. Like we said, they're all going to make their way back up to inspiration. There are many implications that stem from the fact that the Bible is not just a human book, but also a divine book. Because these are God's words for his people, we can highlight several critical aspects of the Bible's character. So let's do that. I think I have four here. So first, the Bible is inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. Some of you might, but others might not be familiar with this term inerrancy. Its meaning is very simple. It just means free from error. Inerrant. Free from error. To say that the Bible is inerrant, therefore, means the Bible is free from error or mistake, and it's perfectly in accordance with the truth. It's truthful in all that it says. The Bible tells the truth regarding everything it talks about, whether it's doctrine or history or science or geography or geology or whatever. And the doctrine of inerrancy is built off the doctrine of inspiration. If the Bible is God's word breathed out, 2 Timothy 3.16, and if God himself is true and free from error, Romans 3.4, then the product of that scripture would likewise be true and free from error. Now, one distinction theologians uh, make about inerrancy is that inerrancy extends to the original manuscripts or autographs of the Bible. As God's word was recorded, it was free from any error. As time went on and men made copies, it's certainly possible for any copyist to introduce an error, slip of the pen, on accident, or even on purpose. And so accordingly, we would say any manuscript or copy of the Bible is inerrant to the degree that it reflects the original. So what do we say about this thing then, the whole, that we hold in our hands? We would confidently say that inerrancy extends to our Bibles today 
Because through our, our serious study of the thousands and tens of thousands of manuscripts, it's, it's not easy but not hard to identify the original text of Scripture. That's something called textual criticism, which we also spent maybe another six weeks on. That's transmission. And that's a, an important study to, to sh- uh, assure that what we have today is what was originally written. When it comes to Scripture's own testimony, though, of itself, you have Psalm 19.7. You know, Psalm 19, the first half is all about general revelation. The second half is all about special revelation. And Psalm 19.7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Titus 1.2 reminds us that God cannot lie. In John 17.17, 17, Christ himself prayed to God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To deny the inerrancy of Scripture really is to to sweep the legs out from under the Bible. And all those who have gone down that road, it's not long before those churches are dead and empty. Because you you take out inerrancy or inspiration first or inerrancy second, you're not going to have much left after a while. It would just erode. Foundation will be undermined. Sinkhole will form. And it's a matter of time before the, the church goes under. It is to make God out to be a liar. And it calls into question the trustworthiness of this book. Jesus could not have said that God's word is really truth. But many in the church today do actually deny inerrancy. Most common example is claiming that what the Bible says about the origin of the universe is not actually truthful. It's not true. Really, and these and other examples forms a truly fundamental line in the sand. With that example, Christians are by no means against science. I mean, God created science too. There's a lot we can learn from the field of science and the scientific method. Just don't forget that all those who challenge what the Bible says about creation, that they're basing their beliefs not on the scientific method where things are observable and repeatable and so forth, but on speculative theories on the origin of the universe. Science is a form of general revelation, which God himself programmed. But never will true science contradict what God has written, which he also programmed. We would rather say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, 4, let God be found true, though every man a liar. God's word is true and is science, true science is true as well. We put that caveat, true science, because we know man whose foolish minds are darkened, interprets science to conform it to his own image and his own will. The Bible is inerrant. Secondly, a second characteristic, the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. These next three, I really like. There's a theologian, probably heard of him, Wayne Grudem. He makes theology very simple, and he gives three simple definitions for the next three characteristics. I'm just going to use them. They're really good. Regarding the authority or the authoritative nature of the Bible, he says this, quote, The authority of the Bible means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. The authority of Scripture means it so represents God and His Word that to disobey or disbelieve any word of Scripture is the same as disobeying or disbelieving God Himself. And you can see the authority of the Bible is built off the fact that the Bible is God's Word. This is This is God speaking to you. This is how he still speaks. And as such, it carries his authority. 
Scripture has the final authority in all matters to which it speaks. This includes the scientific and historical and geographical facts it addresses. The Bible can be trusted. And more than trusted, it demands to be believed and obeyed. Realize the Bible is not just a history book. And really, unlike any other ancient writing especially, the Bible is placing profound demands on you, the reader. It's not just some book written for information. It is placing all sorts of demands on you and your life. Even though it's written 2,000 plus years ago, this book reaches forward through time and grabs you and demands you order your whole life around it. Some serious demands. You might wonder, like, why on earth would we today, Christian or just people living in America 2,000 plus years later, why would we order our modern lives around this 2,000-year-old ancient Middle Eastern book? Like, why would we ever do that? There's no good reason. But one, this book came from God, and it therefore carries his authority. And you, therefore, had better give heed to all the things written in this book. God promises blessing for those who do so and cursing for those who don't. That's one thing we can still see today. We see that blessing played out in people's lives today and that cursing likewise played out as well. This elicits in our minds Psalm 1, which I'm going to read. Just listen to Psalm 1. It makes this very point. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, nor stand in the path of sinners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its uh, leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thirdly, now the Bible is clear. A couple more before we finish. Third, the Bible is clear. Definition here, quote, The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help, and being willing to follow it. I'll say that again. The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. End quote. The Bible is clear. It is understandable. We know not to everyone, unbelievers are those still approaching Scripture as with a veil covering their eyes, and to them it is not understandable. It's not clear. They're prevented from seeing clearly. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. It's the role, the ongoing role of the Holy Spirit in illuminating the word to the mind. But for believers who have that veil removed, the scriptures come alive. Nearly all, if not all believers can testify that before they came to Christ, whenever they read the Bible, it was dull and confusing 
and complicated and boring and fruitless. They got nothing out of it. They didn't, it didn't make sense. They didn't understand. But after they came to Christ, they testified like, oh, it all makes sense now. I, I was reading and this, this went together and this went together. It's clear. It's truthful. It's powerful. It's impactful. It's meaningful. If you're still reading the Bible and it makes absolutely no sense to you, seek counsel and figure that out. It should not be the way if your veil is removed, if you're filled with the Spirit, if you're saved. That should not be the case. Something's wrong. Seek counsel. This doesn't mean, however, Bible study is not required. Bible is clear, but it can also be complex. It's like mathematics. Some parts are very simple, like addition, but other parts can be very complex, like calculus. I don't expect to understand everything the Bible says by putting in zero effort. You still need to be a Berean and study the scriptures, continually diving deeper and plumbing the depths of God's word. So do that. Lastly, though, we need to finish. Number four, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. I'll read one last definition, the sufficiency of scripture. It says, quote, the sufficiency of scripture means that scripture contained all the words of God He intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly, end quote. God's not left any secrets or hidden truths when it pertains to knowing him and and finding him in salvation. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness once for all. No other revelation is on par with the Bible. That goes with human experience. Talking about theology being contemporary, we think about our our modern era, our post-modern era, I should say, where objective truth is fallen by the wayside. People don't care or want objective truth. They've jettisoned it. They've instead accepted subjective truth. You, you, You make your own truth. What is true to you? Your truth. Truth has become subjective, which means by definition, it's no longer truth. But they don't even care. But no, God's word is actual objective truth. It's true even if everyone stopped believing it were true. And in it, God has given you everything you need for doing what he's called you to do. This means you don't need to rely on personal experience or feelings for figuring out what you should do in life. How you should live. Making decisions. Like Peter, we, we should be able to say, we have the more sure word, Second Peter 1.19. You also don't need the opinions and musings of man for life and godliness, for marriage and parenting, for relationships and self-care, for beauty and wisdom, for excellence and insight. You don't need to listen to the world. You should not listen to the world. Their foolish minds are still darkened. Listen instead to God. He knows you. He made you. He knows what's wrong with you. He knows how to fix you, how you can be healed and whole and restored. So stop running off looking for the latest popular opinion to solve the problems in your life and stop desperately searching for some personal experience to tell you how to live, to guide you. Instead, read your Bibles. Go search and seek out God in his word. And as a final word, maybe a a departing piece of homework, I I, I challenge the men at the men's retreat at a quiet time. I'll do the same with you. Go home tonight, tomorrow, and go read every verse of Psalm 119, the longest 
psalm, longest chapter in the Bible. Go read and meditate every word. Psalmist says one thing only and extol God's word. You go make that your prayer as you see, search and seek God through his more sure word. For us, let's finish in a word of prayer. Lord God, we, we say with the psalmist and, and, and pray with him to your glory for giving us that more sure word. Your word is sure. It's true. It's trustworthy. It's sweet. It's comforting. And it gives us truly all we need for life and godliness. We thank you for your grace in that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, sinners who were lost and cut off. We cut ourselves off from you in our own rebellion. We chose to enter the darkness and, and merited nothing from you, but you penetrated the darkness with the light of your word that we might see the beacon of hope and be saved. Just, just penetrating that light, darkness with light was your mercy. The fact that we would even have now in our hands that the blessing of a completed scriptures, multiple copies printed, a great and profound privilege, nothing we're entitled to, how blessed we are today to have a really limitless access to your inspired word. Yet how often we neglect it. We leave it on the shelf. Our multiple copies are just catching dust. We do nothing with it, Lord. Convict us to seek and search out your word that we might know you, we might obey you, and that we might worship you. Help us at this church especially to truly be Bereans, those who search and study the scriptures. We desire to know what you have said, to build our lives around it. We know in this we will be blessed. So may we be those who meditate on your word day and night and find that blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.